A word of caution, this episode will contain frank discussions of sexual assault and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The National Sexual Assault Hotline has help and resources if you need them. That's reachable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call 1-800-656-4673 or go to RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org. The National Mental Health Crisis Line is 988. This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. Sexual assault is devastatingly common on college campuses. By some estimates, 13% of all college students, male and female, undergraduate and graduate students, will experience rape or assault during the course of their college education. That is a staggering percentage. The way we handle campus sexual assault in this country is very piecemeal. Everyone does it differently, and government guidelines have changed a lot over the past 13 years. So what is the solution here, if there is one? Our guest argues it's time to burn all of the current systems down and start from scratch. I don't think expelling 19 and 20-year-old kids, having gone through that process, is really accomplishing anything except taking these very complex and fraught situations and making them binary when they're not. Laura Bazelon of the University of San Francisco joins us in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. In 2011, the Obama administration issued the Dear Colleague Letter. It looked like a letter, but was actually a policy paper. It set some ground rules for how universities should interpret Title IX, specifically in regard to sexual assault cases. In response, many universities implemented a single investigator model for dealing with assault allegations. A school administrator would talk to the accuser and the accused and determine whether it was quote, more likely than not, unquote, that the assault occurred. Now, in 2020, the Trump administration replaced the Obama-era guidelines with a new system. Now, universities were required to stage hearings for sexual assault allegations. Each side could be cross-examined. Victims would often have to be in the same room as the person they were accusing of rape or sexual assault. Then, in 2022, the Biden administration issued a new version dropping the required live hearings and once again allowing a single investigator model, also adjusting the amount of evidence necessary to prompt an investigation. Now, broadly speaking, the Biden version is celebrated by Title IX and victims' rights advocates. It's opposed by those who worry about due process for the accused. But it's messy. All these changes in recent years means there's actually a pretty wide variety of policies existing now in different schools, and it has become so chaotic. In fact, our guest today says it's time to burn the whole thing down. That guest is Laura Bazelon, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Hi, Laura. Hi, Celeste. Okay, so let's talk about your opinion here. That's what we're going to be sort of debating back and forth. Your idea or your thought is that we just need to start from scratch on sexual assault policies. Is that right? To be frank, all of the systems that we've tried have been unmitigated disasters. So, yes. How do you, <laughs> I feel silly saying this, but how do you define unmitigated disaster? I define it as leaving both parties in much worse emotional and often physical condition than they were before. And they were already in bad shape because these allegations are 
unbelievably stressful and traumatizing for both parties. And the system actually exacerbates it, spreads the pain and makes it worse. Okay. And when you say both parties, I assume you're meaning both the accuser and the accused. But what what would be success then? I mean, how would we know that? A, I mean, it seems to me, who in the past was also a victim of, of rape, seems to me that there's both parties are going to be in a bad position no matter how good your pol- your response policy is right i mean that's this isn't a good situation ever so what would a successful program what markers would it need to to meet well first of all i'm really sorry that that happened to you and i would never presume to speak for what you would want personally Celeste, as your process but what i can say having been in the title 9 system now since 2018, through all the changes that you described in the introduction, that what none of them accomplish is real accountability, understanding, learning, and resolution. By resolution, I mean the harmed party walks away believing that one, the harm was acknowledged and accounted for, and two, that it's not going to happen again because there's a plan in place to make sure of it and the other person will be held accountable from the accused point of view, it's acknowledging the various factors that led up to the encounter and how it went the way that they went and what caused them to commit the harm, whether they intended it or not, and what they're going to do moving forward. And I think the system that we have in place basically sets one party up against the other, decides that one is telling the truth and one is lying, and encourages a lot of denial and defensiveness, none of which is designed to get to the things that I was just talking about. So, I mean, sexual assault and rape on college campuses is distressingly common. Um, The statistics vary depending on what source you're using, but uh, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network says that among undergraduates, over one in four women Um, And about nearly 7% of men will either experience rape or sexual assault uh, while they're earning a bachelor's degree. Um, And a a very small number of women will report their assaults to the police, somewhere between 12 and 20%, depending. But when we talk about preventing these things from happening, I mean, obviously, that should be the goal. We should be try to protect people, right? But in criminal justice, it's so rare that punishment affects recidivism, right? Like, so it's rare that punishment actually prevents people from committing a crime. So why would it matter what the response is in that sense? You're right that very few people report to the police. You're also right that very few people report even in the Title IX context. And that's because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. And they're rightly afraid because the way that the criminal justice system works is that you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime occurred. And that's very, very difficult to do, especially in a situation that's often he said, she said, or she said, she said, or he said, he said, with no forensic evidence and no other witnesses. And while there has been a push to prosecute more of these cases, they are still very tricky and they are the type of criminal cases where the rate of hung juries and acquittals is the highest. And I think prosecutors are often loath to go forward because they don't believe they can prove the case, as I said, beyond a reasonable doubt. I think also people understand 
anecdotally and from reading that the women and men who do go through this process often feel that their accounts are picked apart, that they are regarded with great skepticism, and that essentially they are violated all over again. And so they don't want to go through that process. And I'm talking about the rare fraction of cases that get reported and then make it to the district attorney and then make it into a courtroom. That's a very, very small percentage. So Title IX is in place essentially as a different kind of accountability system. And the standard proof is much lower. It's a preponderance of the evidence. And there's no jail or prison time, as you say, even when there is the recidivism rates, just generally speaking, are sky high. And we can have a whole different conversation about the carceral system and its many failings. The Title IX supposed system, though, is supposed to be, the Title IX system, though, is supposed to be educational in nature. That's the point. The point is to help young people become productive, caring, self-aware citizens of this world. And it's not accomplishing that. It really, really isn't. It's putting them through a quasi-criminal process without a lot of those safeguards for either side. So all the harms that I described to you, they tend to happen to people who report in the Title IX context. And then on the other side, there really isn't any education. And I don't think expelling 19 and 20-year-old kids, having gone through that process, is really accomplishing anything except severing them from their education and taking these very complex and fraught situations and making them binary when they're not. Okay, so it sounds like you're making the the case that um, the response to rape or sexual assault on campus should not resemble a criminal proceeding. Is that accurate? My thinking has really come around. I went through with a client a single investigator model, and that was the first Title IX case I ever took. And it was absolutely horrific. It was completely devoid of any process. It was a total sham. And I left that process believing that there had to be some kind of adversarial system in place where the accusations were tested and there were there was the ability to ask questions of the person indirectly through an advisor. And so when the 2020 regulations came down, I was supportive of them. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that this was a productive change, even though I, of course, despise Donald Trump. I just want to remind our listeners, the 2020 changes were when there was a hearing and, and both the accuser and the accused were or could be cross-examined. So, but continue. Yes. And so I've been through the implementation of that as well. And it's really not great for a number of reasons. The process is very political. I think that these hearings in and of themselves can be completely disregarded by the fact finder. Both parties can opt out of them. And so I guess I just leave these adversarial hearings also feeling like, it's really difficult because, as I said before, they resemble the criminal system and not in a positive way. But also, number two, sometimes the results of them just get totally disregarded in the ultimate decision-making process. And so the whole thing feels like, why did it even happen in the first place? And so I've become disillusioned with that as well. And my feeling is that, again, it's not educating anybody. It's not helping young people understand what consent means, how to be kind with each other, how to think about what is pleasurable for each party, how to not be selfish, how to not be careless, how to understand what sexual contact and sexual relationships are supposed to look like, despite, I think, an abysmal failing of such a sex, despite an abysmal failing, I think, on the part of most high schools and colleges to provide decent sex education. But regardless, 
I don't think paying at the back end in this particular way is very healing or educational or accomplishing any of the goals of an institution of higher learning. Okay, we have to take a break here. Um, but in a piece that you wrote for Slate, you suggested a solution. And I, and I want to talk about that when we come back. Um, this is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley, and we will return in a moment. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out. And today we're talking about how universities and colleges respond to allegations of rape and sexual assault. Our guest is a professor of law who says all of the current systems suck and she has a better idea. Now, in your op-ed that you wrote, you suggested that one solution or alternative at least might be a restorative justice process. Now, interestingly enough, restorative justice, that whole system... Um, colleges thought that was banned under the Obama guidelines, and then it was explicitly allowed under the Donald Trump administration guidelines. You know, restorative justice is, is often seen as sort of sweet kindergarten teacher sort of response to conflict. It's it's touchy-feely, right? But that that may not necessarily what it means under law. So what does restorative justice look like as a process? It is fundamentally a victim-centered process. And so it asks, what does the person who is harmed need? Who can meet those needs? What are those needs? What do they look like? And what does accountability look like? The purpose of it really is to keep communities together because it's supposed to bring the person who caused harm and the harmed party together in a process that's designed to dig deep into the root causes of what happened, for there to be an acknowledgement of what happened, not a gaslighting for there to be a discussion of all of the factors that led up to the harm and a bigger discussion about how moving forward that's not going to recur and how the parties are going to be in relationship or not in relationship to each other. And you're right, people dismiss this, as I say, the bunch of kumbaya hooey, but <laughs> actually it's very, very difficult to do this. I just came back from spending a week at the University of San Diego, learning how to be a restorative justice facilitator in these circles. And having been through that process myself, I can tell you it is emotionally draining. It requires a lot of honesty, stripping away your defenses, being nakedly, brutally open and empathic. And the people who've gone through it whether they're incarcerated and it's some kind of adjunct system that helps them prepare for parole or whether it's kids and it's an alternative to them going to prison or jail will tell you that it's easier to just sit there and do your time than it is to sit across from the person that you've harmed, look them in the face and tell them what you did and why you did it. So, I mean, so many questions come to me in response to this. I mean, the first being that in order for a restorative justice process to happen, the accused has to admit that they did something wrong. They they have to admit that they harmed the other person. And that, that's got to be hard. 
I mean, th- th- it's so often denial. That, that's what normally what we hear in these cases. The other person saying, she just changed her mind later. She, you know, is mad at me. And so this is a, a retribution. How do you even get to the place where you bring someone to this process by and saying, yeah, I, I, I hurt you? Well, the stakes are really high. So if you have a situation where the person who is harmed is saying, I would like to engage in a restorative process, then the person who has allegedly caused harm is faced with two choices. One, they can go through this traditional adjudicatory process, which means you're right, they'll probably say they didn't do anything wrong. And then it will be up to a fact finder to decide. And if they're at school, they may be expelled. And if they're in court, they may go to a prison or jail, or they can do this other process, which is really unlikely to result in that outcome. And most people, when faced with that decision, think it's in their best interest to pick the restorative process. But also, sex between teenagers and people in their early 20s on college campuses away from home for the first time and sexual assault and harm is a really specific thing. We're talking about people who usually don't have a lot of experience with sex, who are living away from home all of a sudden with no boundaries or guardrails. There's often drugs and alcohol involved. These are very messy situations with often a lot of shades of gray. And so you're right, it is hard to admit that you harm somebody, but it isn't necessarily as stark as saying, I intentionally raped you. It can be, I really believed that I had your consent in the moment and now understanding what happened from your perspective, I understand that I did not and that I wasn't careful and I wasn't thoughtful and I was thinking about myself or whatever the explanation is. But I guess my point is every situation between these young people is different. It's not what people jump to in their minds, which is Brock Turner, the Stanford swimmer. Yeah. But in order for that to work, the accuser would have to agree that they weren't going to bring criminal charges, that they weren't going to pursue any kind of criminal punishment. So this is a little bit tricky. What happens in the school setting, at least in the ones where we participate, is that the parties sign an agreement and it says, we commit to this process. If for some reason, the restorative process does not work, Nothing that either one of us says inside circle, inside the process can be used in a traditional adjudicatory process if the school chooses to move forward using that route. But you're right. There is still a risk that the person could go to the police and say, I want a criminal prosecution. And here's a bunch of things this person said. I think you can, I think you can convict them now. And my response to that is that I think that would really be a misuse and a manipulation of the restorative process. And I don't see many harm parties doing that because if a restorative process is successful, they don't leave it wanting a carceral solution. So I think that that's an unlikely outcome, but you're right. It's certainly possible and it's a risk. Okay. So then the other question is, keeping in mind that you, that you, very rightly pointed out how specific the situation is and unique the situation is on college campuses. This would likely not work outside in broader society. But at the same time, it would be hard to see this as not um, letting a rapist get away with 
a discussion rather than punishment. I think that's really a misunderstanding of what restorative justice is. It's not really a nice conversation between two people. It's incredibly difficult. First of all, it's not one conversation. It's hours, tens of hours, maybe over 100 hours, because they have to prepare separately with facilitators. They have to do a lot of outside work. They often need to go to therapy, alcohol and drug abuse counseling, all kinds of things. And second of all, the dialogue between the parties is not a simple matter of exchanging stories and walking away. When people go through this process, they are sobbing. They often become overcome and hysterical. They rethink their entire lives. It's just not the kind of hand-holding kindergarten teacher type of situation that you're describing. It's extremely rigorous and, and difficult. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I feel like it's also simplistic to say we're letting rapists walk away. Because again, I think that that's jumping to this idea that every single one of these kids who's been accused is an is it that every single one of these kids who's being accused is intentionally going around looking for people to rape and i just don't think in most cases that's what's happening at all that by definition says that's happening in some cases right the the rare ones i mean there's an exception to every rule right yes there are people okay. who are serial sexual predators and this process is not for them how do you know the difference i think that it's a case-by-case -case determination, and you obviously want people who are handling Title IX complaints on college campuses to be very well-educated and experienced. I would say, in my experience, not just litigating or representing people or advising them in Title IX cases, but also as a public defender for a number of years, it's usually something that you can tell. Okay, so... I mean, I guess that would require all colleges and universities to have someone on staff who was very experienced in this. Is that right? Like you'd have to have a specialist. You would hope that the people who are hired to do this work would be exceptionally well-trained. Now, sadly, that's often not the case, but it should be because the consequences are so high. The stakes are so high. And if you really care about educating the people at your institution, you're going to put people in place who are handling these kinds of complaints who really know what they're doing. So yes, I think they should be extremely well-trained and well-educated. I mean, I have to ask whether or not we would be better served with investing in prevention efforts instead. In other words, if... Um, one of the issues here is that kids are getting to the college and universities for having possibly having sex for the first time, uh, engaging with issues that they find to be confusing and hazy. Um, maybe it just means that all university students need to go through an educational process about about consent, about sexual issues. Is that a better investment? One thousand percent. My staff attorneys oh. and I talk about this all the time. We talk about the fact that what really needs to happen is comprehensive sex education in high school and in college, and that there's really no such thing as too much of that. And what we have is far, far too little of it. And what we have isn't focused on the things that I think it needs to be focused on, which is what is consent? really mean? What does it look like? Not just the words, but the gestures and the behavior. What does pleasure look like? 
for both parties? What does it mean to have a sexual partner and treat them well and with respect? What does it mean to actually understand not just sort of the anatomy of the human body, but how it works in practice? And we talk all the time about the fact that that's a giant failing in our society for all kinds of reasons dating back to how puritanical we are and how much we want to pretend that sex isn't happening, this focus on abstinence. I think there's a rightful focus on educating kids about STIs, about pregnancy, but it can't just end there. You really have to talk about what does sex look like between two consenting people and focus on making sure that everyone understands what that is. Okay, we need to take another break. I have a lot more questions here, Um, but we'll end for this break, at least, on a moment of agreement between the two of us. Um, This is Hear Me Out, podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley, and we will be right back. We're back. I'm Celeste Headley, and today we're talking uh, on Hear Me Out about sexual assault and rape policies at universities and college specifically. And I, I say that because um, our guest, Laura Bazelon, is not suggesting solutions that would work in broader society, but only in these specific instances where it occurs on college campuses. Okay, so right before um, we took a break, we reached a point of a, a agreement here that um, prevention and you know, educating people in advance is even better than investing in whatever our response, university's response might be. That said, you know, one of the reasons I was told by a college administrator that that doesn't happen is because in the past, universities assumed that all students went through a sex education class in high school. Sex education classes in high school, when parents still have the ability to, to object, um, became quite problematic. So maybe that solution works better on colleges because they're now adults. So my question is, why are universities not doing that? I looked up the numbers. The projections are that that would be much cheaper. It would be so much less, um, there would be so much less liability for college and universities to try to prevent rather than respond. So why aren't they doing it? That is such a good question, Celeste. And I really wish I knew the answer. I think it's because they are fundamentally reactive and not proactive. And so they are reacting to a problem, which is that people are reporting that they are being sexually assaulted. And so they built this apparatus to deal with that. But they can't step outside that acute crisis and think more broadly, how am I going to stop this from happening in the first place? And as to the assumption that people get comprehensive, excellent sex education in high school, I mean, I don't know what your sex education in high school looked like, but I wouldn't say that mine was particularly helpful. In fact, I feel like I had almost zero understanding of how my own body worked, having gone through that whole process. And so could schools be doing more? Yes. Do they need to be doing more? Yes. Do the vast majority of kids leave high school with no idea how sex actually works in the real world. Unfortunately, yes. I mean, I, I feel like this conversation is less about me disagreeing with you as it is about um, you helping me understand what your point of view is. And and this is such a fraught topic um, that 
I wish more people put thought into it, <laughs> not just in terms of um, the impacts on victims, which are huge, but also on evaluating possible responses without getting into partisan politics um, or into our sort of existing ideas on what is right or, or what is wrong. In other words, so often responses to these kind of incidents become more about who's speaking. <laughs> Do we like them or not? Do we like Obama more than we like Trump, more than we like Biden, etc.? And not about whether they work or not. And so before we end this up, that's kind of where I want to go is how, how do we know that this solution you, you propose, restorative justice processes, helps victims recover? Well, there's not a ton of empirical evidence on this. And I want to be really clear about that and not pretend that there is. Part of the reason is because even people who really believe in restorative justice are very hesitant to use it in cases of sexual assault. So I'll give you an example. There's this very robust restorative justice program that the Kings County attorney uses in Brooklyn to divert young people out of the criminal legal system and into RJ. And these are cases where there have been maimings and stabbings and shootings, very serious crimes, and they don't take sexual assault cases. So there's a real hesitancy and a gingerness about applying it in that particular context. For that reason, we don't have a ton of data. We have some data. There is an expert, Dr. Mary Koss, who got federal funding to do RJ alternatives in sexual assault cases in the early 2000s in a small sample. And those results were really promising. And then I can tell you anecdotal stories. But the truth is, we're not going to know if this works, unless we're willing to try it on a much broader basis so that we have hard numbers and empirical evidence. And to do that, we're going to have to admit that the current system is an abject failure, which is what I'm really hoping that we can come around to admitting. And I have a little bit of optimism about that only because many of the people who are in this class that I'm taking are Title IX coordinators and deputy coordinators. They work in the system. And they're completely disillusioned because, as one of my classmates told me, I just spend time creating more harm when I'm actually trying to help people. And so I do think there's an openness to saying this isn't working. What can we do differently? And I'm hoping that we can embrace this as an alternative and at least try it. Do you find that the people you speak to are, are especially those who don't specialize in this field, do you find that they're open to admitting that what we're doing isn't working? It's interesting, the response to my slate piece. I was braced for a wave of hate because the last yeah. time I wrote about Title IX in the New York Times, that's what happened. And it was really interesting to see the response in the community of folks who do Title IX as a job for a living. And a lot of them were very supportive of what I was saying. And I have to say, I was surprised, but also happy about that. So I'm not going to say that there's this giant army of let's do RJ in campus sexual assault cases behind me, but it's not just me, which is kind of what I thought when I wrote the piece. 
I guess I've been a journalist too long and I'm cynical about our ability to make substantive changes or even admit that what we've been doing uh, doesn't work. But, you know, maybe this could become a nonpartisan issue because we all want to protect young people. <laughs> one, would, one would think that would be possible. We'll see. Uh, we will definitely get responses from our listeners. Um, and so I appreciate your being willing to come on and talk about your idea. I'm so appreciative that you're willing to talk to me. So we do want to hear from you, regardless of what your past experience has been with this issue. We'd love to hear what you think about the future of school responses to these issues. And we love getting your emails. I'll just be uh, open about that. Many of you, the first line of the emails you send is, I doubt you'll ever read this. Well, let me tell you, we do read them. You can stop doubting. We read all of your emails. Really, we do. Last week, we had Barry Maurer on to make the case that Trump voters are delusional and, he says, part of a cult. We are still getting slews of mail about that conversation, and we're so glad the episode got you thinking. Before we go, I want to share one of the emails we got. This was from a listener named Amy. Your conversation with Barry Maurer did not demean Republicans, which helped move understanding along for me. I'm not a registered Republican. Though the word cult and the phrase death cult sound like name calling and inflammatory, which Maurer acknowledged, using it as a term to explain the persistence of Trump support is helpful. For me, it moves the conversation past, well, Trump supporters are dumb or racist. Reflecting on this is helpful, considering the concept of delusion, considering the concept of cult, and it helps me understand people's concern about political violence in the future. I've listened to the podcast twice because it's dense. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Amy. And I assume you mean dense to mean like in depth, not unintelligent. Um, thank you for that email. And thanks to all of you for every email that you send that we read. Our email address is hearmeout at slate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Hold up. 